Welcome to the Utopian Podcast. This is your host, Zachary Davis. For this episode, I had the privilege of welcoming Wigmore Hall's Executive and Artistic Director, John Gilhooley. We discussed the importance of live music, the digitization of the concert hall, the impact of Brexit and the coronavirus pandemic on the performing arts, as well as how he chooses concert programs and commissions works by contemporary composers. Certainly a wide-ranging conversation. For more information, do find me on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at ZDavisMusic. Thanks. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. I'd like to start by saying how over the past several months I've observed on social media this this beacon of hope that is Wigmore Hall, really projecting a voice for live performance and classical musicians. So thank you for your efforts towards that. But I'd like to ask you, as both executive and artistic director at Wigmore. In your view, why is live music in particular so special? What makes it so important for us all? I think live experiences, live artistic experiences, music or theatre are so important to all of us because, well, at the moment, those of us who are are into that sort of thing, and it's it's a great part of the, the population, find our evenings very empty indeed. And uh, I think live performance is central to who we are as a nation, uh, to our international standing artistically. And it allows us to present the greatest triumphs of human creativity on stages all over the country, night after night. And it it connects us with, with so many others internationally, orchestras and practitioners and musicians right across the world. And uh, it's an international community. And that, so that's why we're all struggling to, to talk to each other online at the moment as best we can. But hopefully we're not too far away again from full houses in our auditoriums around the globe and, and orchestras getting back to doing what they do best. Obviously, nothing will be the same as before. None of us will come back 100%. And, you know, we have to look at the impact on the environment of orchestral touring and that sort of thing going forward. So it's a different world, but more than ever, I think we realize that as human beings, we need this artistic expression and this communal experience, the sacred triangle between in music, between the, the composer, the performer and the audience, um, which in a way has been broken. We're trying to replicate it online as best we can, but nothing beats the live. And um, I'm in the, very happy position of I've already been at a live concert at lunchtime today I've got another one later on you know they're almost private performances at the moment but it is a bit lonely and I can't wait to welcome audiences back live to Wigmore Hall hopefully in May uh, in some form as as the Prime Minister has already indicated. Yes fingers crossed for that and absolutely as you say this kind of communal experience is so important and something that I as a, a student didn't really grasp fully until this sort of horrific year. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Glenn Gould, and of course he wasn't a fan of the concert hall or live performance. And I, I suppose I was always a bit worried about 
performing as you know a student pianist what have you but never have I been so sort of excited and enthralled to see sort of live stream concerts and the thought of going to another concert in person you really don't realize what what's missing until it's not there as cliche yeah as I think I think people for all live arts experiences I think people will be incredibly moved when they get back into our our venues and we'll have lost a certain percentage of the audience and remember you know as well we've we've killed a habit so so for a lot of people because it's going to be 18 months you know we're not all going to get back on our feet straight away uh, and certainly not in every part of the world straight away um given that some are, are ahead in terms of vaccination rates and all that and some behind uh so you know it could be 18 months or longer before audiences get back into our our venues and you know even when we did the first empty hall concert on the 1st of june last year that was a very moving experience certainly for me in the hall but for so many people wrote to us all over the world who just the fact that we'd broken the silence with Stephen Huff uh, live on Radio 3 and on our own website you know and that's only that's only part of the emotion that that I felt from people as they came back to socially distanced halls audiences that we had between September and Christmas uh, even though we were masked and there were only 100 150 people at most in the hall and you know it, it wasn't in some ways, the most pleasant experience because because of all the regulations around it, you know, your temperature being checked at the door and all that sort of thing. But people were so glad to be back. There is a huge hunger. There's a huge appetite. And hopefully we'll come we'll come back with renewed audiences and a new audience. I, cer I certainly think Wigmore Hall will come back with a new audience because our membership has gone up 25 percent. And we know that of those watching us on YouTube, 40 percent are under 35 and uh, percentages like that even higher for for periscope twitter and that sort of thing and facebook so there is a young audience out there they're talking to us they're engaging with us as never before so hopefully you know about 85 percent of our core audience has retained its membership uh, so that to me suggests that that 15 percent of the audience may not come back some of them i suspect you know some of that 15 percent have, have passed on some have left the country because remember the best part of a million people will have left London by the end of by the end of this year. Already, seven hundred and fifty thousand are gone. Partly, partly to do with Brexit, partly to do with the pandemic. Whether or not that that's a, a real figure in terms of people might come back or not, I don't know. But that that's a substantial number of people. It's a substantial number of seats for us all to fill every night if we've lost ten percent of the population um, to to find that new audience for all of us right across the performing arts in one city alone. Absolutely. That kind of international scope is is restricted slightly as a result of the pandemic and, and Brexit. But of course, we have to kind of make do with the situation as best as we can. But you've said so many interesting points there. And when you know, when I was preparing for this podcast, I was listening actually to, to an, an interview you did on Andrew Constantine's podcast to stick with a point. And that was in October last year. And you had yes, mentioned, probably all out of date by now. Yes, well, everything uh, has changed. <laughs> I know, but th this is this is what I find kind of miraculous in a way is that you had said your audience at the time had grown the Wigmore Hall audience or membership rather had grown by ten percent, and you you just said now twenty five percent. That's that's staggering, isn't it? I, it is, and 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 we're now we're only now beginning to get strategic about it. In that, you know, that is only as a result of what we've been doing online. 
we've been working flat out just to put the concerts on. We're now putting a marketing strategy behind that to to entice people to join as members. So that could be a very substantial hike by the time we we reopen. Um, they're members, but of course we they're, they're they're not regular concert attenders from what we know. So you know if they've taken the trouble to to some people will watch us online and not become a member they could well walk through our door eventually those we hope who are taking the trouble to become members and pay a membership fee um are potential audience members but you know all that remains to be seen so how we how we work on that from september onwards and strategize that and 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 entice that potential uh, you know which if they're members i suppose it's it's low hanging fruit in a way but to get them to the halls because you know it, it watching online is one thing and, and a lot of people are writing to us saying i'm at home with my bottle of wine and it's wonderful and we don't have to park the car or find the parking space or a babysitter or uh, we don't have to dress up and uh, you know we can stop the performance and have dinner and then come back it's it's a different it's a different thing but it's still not the same as a live experience so hopefully yeah we, we just have to wait and see how we come out on the other side of this but i think we've got to remain positive and um and it will take there is there's a huge recovery ahead it's going to take us all a few years to get back on our feet to where we were and you you talk about strategy there with maybe a lot of younger people who are now listening to the concerts online and this is one of the the questions that i'd written down in fact because when i first came to university i was and this was pre-covid i was shocked by how many people actually were were into classical music. But mm. I don't know how many of them would have gone to a piano recital, for instance. And my question is, is how, how can you hope to draw people who like classical music and may watch a live stream of a concert into the hall itself? Well, I think our under 35 scheme, which will continue. So at the moment, while we don't have audiences, that doesn't exist. So with Classic FM, we have 25,000 seats available across the season. So that will come back at £5 each for anybody under the age of 35. Uh, so that certainly is a, that's a national scheme. We hope that people come from all over the country. If they're in London, they can participate in that. And all you have to do is prove that you're under 35. Um, and uh, that, that was going exceptionally well. So it's a pity the pandemic got in the way because that was beginning to build. So I think that will come back with renewed vigour and uh, in a way, hopefully, the, the breadth of the repertoire and the, and, and the diversity of the artists that we've covered in this almost 12-month period um, is bringing audiences of all sorts to us who will, who will venture to Wigmore Street. Remember, there's no such thing as one audience. So, you've, you know, people talk to me about the Wigmore Hall audience. There's no such thing. Um, we have a, a Wigmore Hall audience for piano. We've got a Wigmore Hall audience for song recital. We've got a Wigmore Hall audience for string quartets who hate song recitals. Um, sometimes you can program a particular international pianist on Monday and uh, you put a different one on on Thursday and all the people who come on Monday usually avoid the one on Thursday because, you know, we all listen in different ways. There is a quality threshold, you know, and that's my job to make sure that we don't yes. we don't program anything be below a certain quality threshold, even in a pandemic and even when you're dealing with only with 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 local artists. And the beauty, of course, is that we've been able to prove that there is a rich abundance of artistic talent right through the nation and, and and they're appearing with us night after night at the moment in all its complexity and diversity as well and that's that's great so i think it's very exciting it's 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 been horrendous it's it's been a huge blow so many people in isolation 
so much suffering, so much hardship in every sense, not only in the industry. And, you know, I've been advocating and speaking up for the industry greatly. Today, I don't really want to, to do that because my, my, I'm thinking about the nurses who are only getting 1% pay rise, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, we all have our own story and we've got to be very careful. And I, I've tried to be very measured right through the pandemic, in, particularly in my capacity as chairman of the Royal Philharmonic Society, uh, to when speaking up for music, to acknowledge that there's hardship right through society. And we're not asking for special bleeding. We were asking for help for freelancers in every part of, of, of uh, the world and every part of our, our, our national life, not just in the arts. Um, those, anybody who fell between uh, the cracks in terms of, of social welfare support, no matter what their background or profession. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it is very important that we speak up for the arts and for live performance and its value to the cultural life and to the mental health, to the mental well-being of the nation. And I think more than ever, again, we're able to show that that's needed. The summer festivals are needed. Uh, we're just as important an outlet for people as sport. Uh, in a way, it's good that the department responsible for culture is is also responsible for sport because you know when we go to make when we're making arguments about capacity and about coming back the fact that sport is part of that mix helps classical music it doesn't just look like something preaching from an ivory tower and uh, that we work with rock and pop and with theater and all that sort of thing that's all very important as well uh that we don't just work in isolation because we want to to get back on our feet but you know as a live experience nationally. Absolutely. And you, you, you've mentioned so many things there. It's great. Mental health is certainly one aspect that is a benefit, is an advantageous side to going to a concert, be it classical or, or a different kind of music. And one thing I can say for certain is that many people, including myself, over this pandemic, if we've consumed one thing, it's art, be it film, be it music, be it looking at paintings. It is almost a way of, of coping and dealing with life. And I, I, as I said earlier, it is something that you only notice is lacking when it's pulled and dragged away from us by this sort of force of nature. Now, if I could move on to your point on audiences, because you mentioned that there are an awful lot of different audiences. And I'm, I'm curious, because you're also artistic director at Wigmore Hall, how does this affect your choice in, in programming, precisely? Uh, well, to, to create a program across a year that is as diverse as possible. Um, but not to, not to get to, I try to maintain 50-50 male-female balance across the year. That, that usually works out. It doesn't work out every month or every week. And I think I'm not going to get obsessed about whether we have more men or more women in a particular week. If across the year it doesn't add up to 50-50, then uh, I think we have a problem. So uh, so I keep an eye on that. Uh, and uh, But also then various themes. So no two seasons should look the same. So I'm always planning in three-year cycles. Obviously, that's a little bit harder right now because you're planning sometimes a week ahead. Um, at the moment, I've just signed off the month of April, which is very odd, very odd feeling for, for somebody who's usually working. Usually I'd be working on the year 24 or the year 2025 at the moment, and we're nowhere near that. Um, 
but I plan usually in three-year cycles and, you know, you decide in a particular year how to, to give light and shade to the season. You know, in season one, you're going to focus on Bartok and, and Schubert. Maybe you you focus on John Cage and in season two. You know, you make sure that you've got a good balance of female as opposed to male composers. So we're talking at the moment to people like and Josephine Stevenson uh, will, will be composer in residence at some point uh, and, and other female composers in residence as well, just trying to work that in. One of the challenges would be to make up all the lost concerts that have happened since last year and some of those lost residencies. So there are two or three major residencies which we weren't able to put back on the stage because at the beginning, when we started programming in January or in June, um, we, were, we were only allowed to put two people back on the stage. So those larger ensembles are coming back gradually. And if social distancing isn't reduced again, given the size of our stage, that's a problem. So I'm not quite sure how we'll bring those or when we bring those larger ensembles back. But in, in planning a season, you think very much about uh, what the public want, uh, what, what you think as artistic director the public should hear. This is what John McCormick used to say about devising a programme, that he, he, he thinks about uh, what's good for the audience, what they expect to hear, uh, and then what he feels they should hear himself. And I think any artistic director should have that sort of philosophy in mind. But you must not program only according to your own tastes. So, you know, I'm planning 550 concerts a year. I don't have to equally like everybody that I book, as long as I know that they are internationally acclaimed and they're of a certain quality. Uh, the fact that they play Bach in, in a way that's not to my taste is neither here nor there, because there are 550 other people and many hundreds of thousands who, who are happy to listen to that on the radio. So, and I think artistic directors sometimes get caught in that trap that if you only book according to your own taste, you will fail. And I've seen it happen time and time again, whether you're planning a festival or a major season. Um, so the arc of a season is very important. Uh, how, you, how you highlight the core repertoire of, you know, essentially the Haydn, Mozart, the, the, the old Viennese repertoire, how you bring out 20th and 21st century repertoire, how you introduce new voices, how you bring in debut recitals. Um, it's better to be a year late with a debut than a year or two too early because you can do terrible damage. Right, uh, nice. uh, so that, that, all that's taken into account. Uh, so, uh, you know, looking at the established artists who've been going for decades and, and for people who've never appeared with us before, uh, watching diversity on that, bringing artists from every background, every uh, every race, uh, and 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 uh, looking at socioeconomic background as well, I think is very important. It's 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 not just uh, about about ethnicity, uh, and that we're representing, you know, that we represent going forward music of of Africa and the African American tradition. Uh, that we look at the history of the whole between 1910 and 1950. The number of black singers who came to the hall from the States, the most famous among them was Marian Anderson. But there was there was literally one a month and, and filling the hall and and paving a way for people like Grace Bunbury and Jesse Norman. Um, Marian Anderson in particular, giving a traditional leader abend, but always finishing with with spirituals in the same way that, that John McCormack mixed uh, leader with with Irish song for audiences. Uh, around the same time and 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 you know he was filling the royal albert hall and marion anderson then going on to, to conquer europe from from these debuts at wigmore wigmore street but actually the, the number of black artists coming from the states appearing across musical theater and 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 uh in in all of our uh 
musical outlets in that first 50 years of the 20th century is exceptional and and in a way something that we need to revisit and and repopulate our programs with that sort of of programming um so that's something that 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 we look at so there are always sort of things in the past that you can revisit uh and what i find fascinating is is the the diversity of the whole and everything that it's done over the past 120 years so much of that is now relevant again and that we we can bring it back in a kind of non-threatening way there is a perception that we are only one thing and that is that narrow uh, viennese repertoire we're so much more across 550 concerts and of course post-Brexit, that we represent uh, what it is, uh, culture right through England. And of course, there are so many nationalities living here, not least the 27, from the 27 states of the United, of, of, of the European Union. Uh, and, and, you know, continuing to, to represent the music of Poland, France, Austria, Italy, and Germany in particular, and, and, and Czech music, I think, all that's very important. And again, from the 19th century right through on until now and of course that that wonderful scandinavian school of music as well so many wonderful finnish musicians uh and then our links with 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 china and japan uh with the states you know with with the entire world and 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 how that's focused and purposed in particular seasons but but that it's constantly being refreshed and that no no two seasons look the same and that's that's the broader level. That's the broader way of looking at programming. And then, of course, you have to look at individual programs. You can create very intellectual evenings around particular themes, and we love doing that. And I certainly love doing that. But also, you've got to remember now and again, people just want a good night out and not to over intellectualize or preach to the audience, um, because in the end of the day, the end of the day, yes, it's a very prestigious venue, and many of us throughout the world are running prestigious venues. But audiences want a good night out, so so that's what we're selling. We're selling seats and we're selling entertainment. Um, but as I said, uh, from the richest stores of human creativity. Absolutely, it certainly sounds like a a healthy, nuanced balance that you're striving for. Sort of exposing certain things to people they might not have heard before, but also things that they will know and recognise and in, know that they will enjoy listening to. And yes, you, if, you you almost give them you almost give them more more than they need of what of what they're used to, and then as a programmer you can get away with with uh, doing all that more adventurous stuff, which kind of leads me no, on nobody to can complain. yeah yeah which which leads me leads me on to contemporary composition and and commissions yeah. and how that all works. And I remember I I saw um, one of my favorite moments, most memorable moments at Wigmore Hall, was actually seeing the premiere of. Uh, Brett Dean's piano quintet. I think it was in spring 2019, and that blew my mind. And in terms of what contemporary classical music was, uh, do you have any words on on where contemporary composers lie within your 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 programming ethos? Uh, well, I th I think for some reason I don't think it's it's widely enough not acknowledged that that no other hole in the world has actually uh commissioned as much since 2005 we've commissioned now 560 commissioned or co-commissioned 560 works since 2005 and apart from bespoke uh ensembles that specialize in contemporary music and do nothing else i don't think there's a venue anywhere that has has done that sort of thing uh the pandemic of course has given us time to take stock and uh, we had a call out 
internationally uh, for 12 to 14 new commissions. Uh, and we've said that anybody who, who is already being commissioned by Wigmore Hall shouldn't apply. Uh, and that we were looking for, in particular for female LGBTI voices, disabled uh, people from, from various minorities, uh, anybody who felt underrepresented or excluded from, from the contemporary music world. To our great surprise, that had 700 entries. So uh, what I thought would be a quick process is still ongoing. And I think we should have a result somewhere around, hopefully in, in time for May, uh, to announce who those 14, 12 to 14 new voices will be. Uh, and that's been very exciting. And also bringing in uh, composers from diverse backgrounds to help in the sifting and the evaluation of that. Because usually I'm just choosing the composers and the composers and residents would go along. So I asked a number of colleagues, all from diverse backgrounds, to help with this. And, and in the main composers, actually, um, it's been a huge amount of work for them. Uh, and deliberately, I haven't looked at the list yet of, of who, who got to the... So the 700 was reduced to 108. Um, once everybody has made their decisions, then I will look at the 108 and chair the final meeting. And, and we'll come to a consensus around the last 12 or 14. Uh, but of course, and that would reflect not only what happened or how uh, these composers' reaction or, or, or what the pandemic has brought out in terms of their creativity, but also various world and political events in 20 and 2021. So that, that I think could be very interesting. So they'll probably start coming online in about 18 months. Uh, once we once we uh, commission and, and contract and all that sort of thing. And it would be very interesting to see, of course, I would be guiding those younger voices, trying to to, to match them up again if, if they're writing for ensemble or soloists with people of their own age. But we will we don't want to impose either a composer on an individual or an ensemble or, or the other way around. So it's very important that they all get on and in a way find themselves. So so that will be that will take a, a bit of time as well because in the past, I've noticed um, we don't do it, but I have noticed that if you if you dictate to a particular ensemble that they this is who's going to work, who's going to compose for them, or you tell a particular composer that they must write for a particular ensemble, it doesn't always end well. So uh, friends finding friends or finding new friends who are able to work with each other and that proper creative dynamic is very important. So that might take a little bit while to, to unravel, um, but it's all very exciting as well, because again, I suspect that would bring us uh, ensembles and, and soloists that we, we mightn't use, usually program. Well, I'm very much looking forward to it. It sounds really exciting. John Gilhooley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome.